invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel, the last of the major prophets, will be in chapter 8. Been in a series uh, through the book of Daniel, a common practice in Reformed churches is called Lectio Continua, which is simply that you preach consecutively through a book. And so we've looked at the first seven chapters of Daniel. We come now to Daniel chapter 8. And it's a good practice, an important practice, I think, in the life of the church because it requires us to think about chapters and passages and verses that we often may want to overlook or ignore. Uh, Daniel 8 is not necessarily an easy chapter, though its main point, I hope, becomes very clear and very easy for us because I do think it's helpful for us to know as the people of God and powerful for us in our lives. Uh, So Daniel 8 isn't simply a chapter I picked out of nowhere, uh, just so you know if you're coming in for the first time, but we've been working our way through this book as we think about what God is doing. Now, very briefly, the book of Daniel, as we've said a number of times, is divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6, you have those really memorable narratives where God shows his glory through his, uh, his, his uh, sons, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the courts of Babylon as God rescues them and delivers them and also humbles seemingly powerful kings and seemingly powerful monarchs like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And so in those narratives, we see the glory of God revealed to the world. And now in Daniel chapter 7 to the end, chapter 12, we have these visions that Daniel receives. And these visions are prophetic. Daniel receives them at the time of Babylon uh, when he was still in that country before the Medes and the Persians came and Greece came and Rome came. And yet Daniel sees these empires from afar. He sees them rising and falling, reminding us that history is not governed by chance and it's not random, but history, and as it unfolds, is governed by our God. It's the unfolding of his purposes, of his plan. And therefore, God can reveal to Daniel things that have not yet happened, as we see even taking place here in a very clear way in Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel receives another vision regarding the future and regarding uh, that future in order that his people might find comfort in the midst of powerful empires coming and going, and yet God's purposes standing. So... That's by way of introduction. Let's jump into Daniel chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, that's the king of Babylon at the time, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, referring back to chapter 7. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was, was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. 
He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had power, had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place, rather state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me to stand. He said, behold, I will make known to you what will be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power." And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So far from God's holy word. I ask you to please keep your Bibles open as we consider this chapter together. Before we do, though, let's go before our God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us eyes to see 
ears to hear. May your spirit be at work applying this heart deep into our souls and that as your word is proclaimed, it would land on good soil bearing fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you persevere in faith to God when you live under constant pressure? How do you persevere in obedience to God and faith in God when you live under constant pressure and even at times intense persecution? What's the answer? What's the key for God's people, for you? Especially when we think and it appears that the persecution, the pressure, does not seem to be close to ending. It seems to be far off still. There's no end necessarily in sight. How do you persevere in faith and obedience to God then? And it's a question that we all need to wrestle with, especially today. I was reminded as I was preparing this sermon of the email that Jonathan had sent out regarding Sheena's family in Pakistan. Now, we're not under that kind of persecution, but God's word speaks to God's people all throughout the earth. And it's that kind of comfort that God's people need. And an answer to that question, you know, how do our brothers and sisters in Pakistan persevere in faith and obedience to God when they live under great pressure and intense persecution? Is it possible? For many of us, while not facing that kind of persecution, still know the pressures around us for living for Christ. A number of us have shared in their own workplaces the kind of training programs they're being forced to engage in, a kind of training program that requires them to affirm and recognize things contrary to God's word and contrary to their convictions as a Christian. How do you in in the workplace persevere in such a place? Oftentimes, it could either lead negatively to compromise or it could lead possibly other also a negative thing, to termination, right? Now, some of us are able to continue to work in these places, but it's a shame when the world begins to push Christians out of areas where in their own convictions, they cannot remain in a place. And yet, when we are remaining, when we are here, like Daniel was in Babylon, how do we maintain, how do we persevere in faith and obedience to God? Well, Daniel chapter 8 gives us the answer to that. There's a number of things going on in this text, but the main point is to answer really that question, right? Because Daniel, at the end of this vision, is told, seal up the vision for it is from for many days from now, right? Daniel is in Babylon. He's expecting God's promise of restoration to come soon, and yet he's given this alarming vision that It's actually not coming soon. And God's people are going to need to persevere longer before the fulfillment of of restoration. And so too with God's people uh, today. And yet, as God answers that question for us, how do we persevere in faith and obedience to him in pressure and in persecution? He reminds us of this truth and a truth that we need deeply embedded in our souls, just, just coded into our DNA as we live as Christians in this world. And it is this truth that evil will succeed, but it will be broken. Evil will succeed, 
but God will break it, right? If evil, if we can personify evil, had an Instagram account and they posted atrocity after atrocity, the Christian could comment under every single post, but you shall be broken, but you shall be broken. Under every instance of evil we see in this world, of every evil person indeed, we can say, but you shall be broken. And this is the theme that comes out as sort of the climax of this chapter. If you look back at verse 25, this final figure, we'll kind of work our way to him later, but this final figure who is great in power, who seems to succeed in his, in his, in his schemes, even to the point of rising up against the prince of princes, going up against God himself, right? He, he rises to that level of greatness and he shall be broken. What a wonderful thing for God's people to hear, for Daniel to hear, and he shall be broken, right? Under every threat against God's church, against every enemy that rises against him, whether it is a spiritual enemy or a temporal enemy, whether it is the world, the flesh, or the devil, under all of them we can comment, and he shall be broken. That is our confidence, and that is our hope, and that is how we persevere in faith and obedience to God, even when evil seems to be succeeding and evil seems to be moving forward. It shall be broken. So that in mind, I want us to dive into this chapter under three points. Points that are for God's glory and our comfort. First, God's pattern for his glory and our comfort. Secondly, God's providence for his glory and for your comfort. And then thirdly, God's promise for his glory and your comfort. So a pattern, providence, and a promise. Let's first think about God's pattern for his glory and your comfort. If you followed along in the narrative that we read here, the vision that takes place as a kind of narrative before Daniel, you'll notice that a number of prominent and powerful figures rise and come to dominate the scene of the world, world history. And these figures are symbolically depicted as various animals. First a ram comes, then a male goat comes, and within that male goat he has various horns, right? And so you have a sort of animal planet vision going on here in Daniel chapter 8, where this ram and the goat are symbolic of powers who will come upon the face of the earth. Later in the interpretation that Daniel receives, the ram is said by the angel to represent the Medes and the Persians, and the goat is said to represent the kingdom of Greece. These two rams come to power. But there's a, there's a pattern that each of these figures is pressed into. There's a pattern that each of these powerful figures are pressed into that we need to see, and God wants you to see that you might take comfort in this. Because this pattern is that one, that this animal comes upon the scene and rises to great strength and becomes great. We see this with the ram, for example, right? Verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, right? It's the Medes and the Persians as they conquered various places very swiftly. And it says no beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. 
he did as he pleased and he became great, right? You have this seemingly invincible ram, this seemingly invincible people, this nation, this empire, the Medes and the Persians. They're dominating to the point where it would seem that who could overcome the ram? Who could defeat this ram? And yet, the pattern doesn't end there, right? They appear, they rise to greatness, but then they fall. Right? That's the basic pattern that we keep seeing over and over again. They come upon the scene of world history, they rise to greatness, and then they are broken. So the ram, seemingly invincible, dominating the land, all of a sudden, Daniel sees a male goat speeding towards him so fast that the goat's feet do not seem to be touching the ground. An incredible picture. And the goat comes charging towards this ram. And with great swiftness and power, this seemingly invincible ram is knocked to the ground and defeated. Now this goat that comes forward is, as the angel tells Daniel, is Greece. And specifically, very, or very likely, Alexander the Great. A swift general who comes to the power, by the age of 30, conquers the known world. He comes and he dominates as this uh, goat, as he's depicted here. And notice, just like the ram became great, so too we read in verse 8, the goat became exceedingly great. Who could conquer the goat? Who could conquer the seemingly invincible goat at this point, right? The powerful nation of Greece under the general uh, uh, command of Alexander the Great. But notice the other portion of verse 8. When he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Right? Alexander the Great had conquered the known world by age 30. I believe by age 33, he died. And his kingdom, which is incredible that God's word can reveal this to us and wonderful, his kingdom was divided among his four generals. Uh, These four generals begin to um, reign over Alexander's kingdom. Macedonia is under Cassander. Thrace and Asia Minor are under Lysimachus. Maybe. (laughs) Syria under Seleucus and Egypt under Ptolemy. Right, so God, his kingdom is divided as God's word said it would be divided, right? As it says at the end of verse 8. There came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Now these various kingdoms, now the divided Greece, clashed with one another. Specifically the Syrians and the Egyptians, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. You see various fighting taking place between them. And the importance of that is that between them is Israel, Right? the land, the people of God. And so they're caught up in this conflict throughout their history. But again, we see, and the point here is to see the pattern. The ram appears, becomes great, is broken. The goat appears, becomes great, is broken. And his kingdom is divided among him. And from within that kingdom, it says a little horn rises up. Verse 9 Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, 
it's very likely most commentators would note that the figure that this is pointing to is a figure named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was the ruler of the Seleucid kingdom, one of the kingdoms that Greece had broken up into. And he begins through deceit and through power to begin to conquer and take things. But what made him so evil, according to the text, because he comes as sort of that final boss, the the highest and greatest instantiation of evil in this text here, is that he set himself toward the glorious land. That's referring to the land where God's people dwelt. And that's why he becomes so significant. He becomes exceedingly great and takes to himself the name Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, I don't suggest taking that name for any of your children if you're thinking about it. Theos Antiochus Epiphanes means the illustrious God. He divinized himself. He he viewed himself as a God. And and he sets himself against the glorious land and specifically against the temple. Now, when the people heard of this title that he took to himself, Antiochus Epiphanes, they began to mock him and called him Antiochus Epimanus, which means the madman. And he certainly is such as he assaults heaven itself and opposes God. And he comes in history to Jerusalem and he, cre- and he um, carries out some of the most vicious and abominable deeds that you could ever imagine, which I won't recount, against the citizens of Jerusalem. And he enters into the Holy of Holies, the temple itself, desecrates it, takes its vessels and sets up in the midst of it where the true God was to be worshipped. He sets up a statue an altar to his God, the God Zeus. He desecrates these things. And this is what the angel is recounting for us. And, and it's why the angel, as he hears these, or Daniel and the angels, he hears these things, asks the question, how long? The name of God is being dragged through the mud. It's being desecrated. It's being blasphemed. How long, O Lord? To which is then said for 2,300 evenings. We'll say more about that later. But the point that we need to see here is that just as the seemingly invincible ram came on the scene, became great, and was broken, just as the goat came on the scene, became great, and was broken, so too this little horn came, will come on the scene, will become great, and he too will be broken. And that's the main point that Daniel needs to see. That though this cycle of evil seems to continue, they will, it will be broken. And though powerful, evil men may rise to greatness, they will be broken. That God has not relinquished his sovereignty over his creation. That it remains, even when these men are dominating, it remains his world and they are ultimately serving his purposes. You see, these various figures, whether it is the Medes and the Persians like a ram or the Greece like a goat or the little horn like Antiochus Epiphanes, all of them reveal to us a basic pattern in history. And it, it allows us then to think that in the same way God broke Antiochus Epiphanes for his blasphemy against his name, so too God will break 
Satan's power, and God will break even that later figure that the New Testament speaks about as the man of lawlessness, or as John speaks about him as the Antichrist, a final figure who rages a great war of deceit and of persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. But as Daniel was assured, so too God's church is assured today that though these powerful figures rise, they shall be broken. God will not allow them to ultimately to succeed. They may get close, seemingly, but God overturns them all. And so this figure, this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, prefigures for us that final great enemy that we read about throughout the scriptures. Now just to see this, um, so, so you know I'm not making this up, notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 15. You see, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, you might say, well, didn't that take place already? This is after Antiochus, right? So he's recognizing that this points further. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And we'll end there. So here, uh, we are recognizing that these figures that we read about in Daniel prefigure, point to, of greater enemy who will rise against the church. But that enemy too, as God reminds us and comforts us, will be broken. So this is the basic pattern. Now, now let's, before we move on to our second point, let's think about some kind of application, the so what. You know, what, what, what does it matter if we recognize this pattern or not, right? Evil comes, it becomes great, and it will be broken. Why does this matter? Well, first, it's, this pattern is helpful for us because it, prepare, it prepares you. It reminds us that there are great enemies opposed to God. And even as Christ prepared his people in Matthew chapter 24 of a great enemy, so too the church ought to be prepared for great enemies to rise against her. Not to be caught off guard. Not to be caught su- surprised that, oh, we're, we're, we're opposed. We have enemies but rather to recognize the pattern that enemies rise and come. And not merely enemies, but, whether, uh, but also great tragedies, difficulties that befall our own lives as well, to be prepared for those things. This pattern helps us. 
Secondly, this pattern comforts us, right? It comforts you because we can see though evil comes and though it rise and though it seem great, God will indeed break it. One commentator had said, no matter how great and menacing an empire may appear to be, it is simply an actor in a play written by someone else. It plays out the role assigned to it by God on the revolving stage of world history. And then when its lines are over, it slinks away into the wings, right? This is the truth regarding all these seemingly powerful empires that oppose Christ and his church. It comforts us. It also emboldens us, this pattern, right? It reminds us that evil may have its day, but it's only its day. It's not forever. And it emboldens us then to stand against it and to stand for Christ in the midst of evil days. That in the midst of great and powerful enemies, we can stand because we know that they will be broken. We know their schemes will be foiled in the end by God. Not only does it prepare us and comfort us and embolden us, but it also reminds us that we are in a spiritual war, that our enemies are not merely flesh and blood, but we wrestle against great forces of darkness behind all of these various figures who rise and fall. The Belgic Confession, a Reformed Confession, Article 12, reminds us of this truth. It says, The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it like thieves with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. These are the kind of enemies we face ultimately as the people of God. But notice it goes on to say, So then, by their own wickedness, they are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments, right? They will be broken. And lastly, this helps us in that it orients us to what is most important, right? The question is, why do these enemies come to greatness? Why does God allow them to come to greatness? Now, we often can't have an, don't have a, a very clear answer to that. But one answer we know in every, in every instance is that God brings them to greatness and allows them to rise to greatness for his glory that he may demonstrate and show that he alone is the one who breaks them, right? This is what the text in Daniel reminds us, right? The end of verse 26, he shall be broken, but by no human hand, right? Their strength is beyond the strength of a human hand to break, to break. But God comes and demonstrates that it's he alone who can break the powers of evil, and so, it's, so it orients us to what is most important, the glory of God. And so that's the pattern for God's glory and for our comfort. Secondly, and we'll be a bit briefer on our next two points, we want to look at God's providence for his glory and for our comfort. And we see this in two, in two ways in this text. The first is the fact that Daniel receives this vision before the Medes and the Persians came to power, before Greece ever came to power as well. And it reminds us, as we said before, that history and the unfolding of events in this world are not random or governed by chance, but rather they're governed by God. It's his providence. As his plan unfolds, and though we can't always understand it and often don't, we recognize that 
that history moves according to God's plan and God's purposes. And he has promised then that in the end, he will bring his church into the goodness to, to lavish upon him, him, uh, them his goodness and to glorify himself. But we also see God's providence, not only in the fact that this is not history but prophecy, but also in the fact that, that when it is asked, how long will this desecration go on? The angel is told for 2,300 evenings. Now, visions are symbolic, right? The ram is symbolic. The goat is symbolic. So, too, it's very likely this number is not literal but symbolic. And it's referring to an incomplete period of time, saying that a complete period of time would be for seven years. 2,300 evenings and mornings comes to less than just under seven years, six, almost six and a half years. And the point here is to say that though evil may have its days, its days are numbered, its days are limited, and it's God who has measured them out. And the fact, and this is a really a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing to see, the fact that God gives this measurement, right, how long in days, reminds us that it will be not a single day more. Not a single day beyond what God has apportioned for, for it. Not a single day more. Now, in our days, we count not only in days, but we're very acute with hours and minutes and seconds, right? Our watches can tell us these things, right? They didn't have watches back then on their wrists. We could say not a second more, not a millisecond more, right? God has apportioned the limits, the boundaries in which evil may succeed and not a day more. That's the point that we need to see why this, the, the days of evil are here numbered, not necessarily to set out a scheme of things, of what this might correspond to, but to recognize that God has numbered the days in which evil may succeed. One commentator said this, God will be counting the days. If he preserves the tears of the church in a jar, won't he also keep careful track of those 2,300 evenings and mornings, right? So this is the providence of God, and it reminds us then that evil and evil men that rise on this earth are not outside God's control. God is their master too. A few, uh, actually about a week ago, Susanna and I fell behind in our, our, our uh, daily Bible reading together. And so to catch up, we had a marathon of reading straight through the book of Job. So we just sat there on the couch and just read through Job. And it ended up being a very profitable spiritual exercise. The book of Job, as you know, is dealing with the problem of suffering, right? Job is suffering and his friends come to him and they're trying to reason with him and to figure out why it is that Job is suffering. And there's 40-something chapters of them thinking through this. And it's quite telling, and I think it's actually part of the wisdom of the book that we recognize that the solution to suffering and evil isn't a quick fix. It's not a one-chapter book. It takes all these chapters, all of these wrestlings to come to an answer to, and until God comes at the end and speaks to them and reveals to them that his purposes, his ways are higher to them. And within that context, God reminds them that Leviathan, which was a figure that they looked to as sort of the embodiment of evil, a sea monster, 
God even says that Leviathan, he plays with like you would play with a rubber ducky in the toilet. Uh, not the toilet, the bathtub. <laughs> totally different. <laughs> but God shows himself to be totally in control, even of evil. God shows himself to be the master even of evil things that befall We see this in the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is sold into slavery, but God uses it for good, right? In all of these things, God's providence becomes a great comfort for you because you know that evil never comes to you by chance, but from his hand, and he will use it ultimately for your good and for his glory. Evil may be a great mystery, and we don't always understand its purposes, but we do know that God is its master, and God uses it for his purposes in ways that are often higher than we can comprehend. So we've seen um, God's uh, providence for our comfort. And lastly, we want to think about God's promise for his glory and your comfort. We recognize in this text here that at this basic pattern, as we've been seeing, that evil may succeed for a time, but it will be broken. And the reason that evil comes upon the scene here is, as verse 12 tells us, it says, The host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. Right? Israel at this time had greatly sinned against God and continued in their sin. It's because of the transgression that this evil is befalling God's people. Well, this text then ultimately is going to point us forward to the fact that the evil of God's people becomes pointed and it becomes concentrated in a single figure because of the transgression. The transgressions of God's people at some point are going to be concentrated in a single individual who will bear them. A single individual who will pay for the transgressions, a single individual upon whom the greatest evil will fall. And that single individual is the Savior and will be the Savior. That single individual is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the, the evil comes and the transgressions because of the transgressions, but in the cross of Christ, Jesus concentrates in himself the transgressions of his people and upon him the greatest act of sin, the worst of worst evils befalls him as the very Son of God, innocent in every measure, is hanged on a cross. It's then that the darkness seems to succeed. It's then that as Christ hangs there upon the cross, seemingly helpless, seemingly hopeless, pierced through his side with a spear, that water and blood flows out, his body taken down from the cross and laid lifeless in a tomb. Talk about evil coming to greatness. Talk about wickedness and wicked schemes seeming to succeed. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, dead, buried, lifeless, and the stone is rolled in front seems to have been the day of darkness, a day of great evil succeeding. 
But remember the pattern, right? But he shall be broken. But he shall be broken. Three days later, that very body, its lungs expand, blood begins to flow, its eyes open, and Christ himself emerges from the grave, breaking the power of sin and death and Satan. Breaking the greatest example of evil that has ever befallen anyone on the face of the earth. Greater than the Medes and the Persians. Greater than Greece. Greater than Antiochus who divinized himself. Greater than all of this. Jesus Christ proves the fact that he shall be broken. And that is the great comfort, right? We might say... Wait, this pattern that we heard earlier sounds great, right? It sounds wonderful. I love this pattern that evil won't succeed. But can you assure me of that? Can you guarantee me that evil indeed will be broken? Yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the guarantee that evil shall be broken. It is Christ who broke the power of sin and death. It's Christ who sets his people free from these things. And it's in Christ then that we have the assurance that just as Satan's schemes were foiled, just as God yet allowed him to seemingly succeed for a time, his time was limited. And on the third day, it was overturned. It was broken The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that guarantees the promise that he shall be broken. To Satan and his followers, it is promised that you will be broken. To Christ and his followers, it is promised that you will be made new. You will be restored. This is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is history defined by the cross. We asked earlier, why does God allow this pattern to unfold? Well, this pattern reveals the cross of Christ over and over again. When wickedness rises, but it's broken at its height, it shows us the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of the cross of Christ. And this power is at work in your lives as well. In the life of the church here, though evil may seem to succeed, The cross of Christ reminds us of God's promise that it will be broken. Again, a commentator had said this, The cross is therefore the guarantee that God's plan will always prevail even in the face of our weakness, rebellion, and sin, and in spite of the fierce enmity of Satan and all of his hosts. What a wonderful comfort to rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to conclude with this comforting words from the Apostle Paul that stand upon that foundation, that rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the power of his cross at work through the preaching of his gospel. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 31, what then shall we say to these things, right? In light of what we've heard, what what shall we say to these things? As those who have trusted in Christ, as those who know the power of his cross, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Right? Remember our opening question? How do we persevere in our faith and obedience to God under pressure and intense persecution? By knowing this. And being sure of this with the Apostle Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the reason that every evil scheme will be broken. God's people will be made new. And we will dwell with our God in joy forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful vision that Daniel received long ago. One that continues to give comfort to your church today. And Father, as great and powerful And wicked men have risen to greatness and to great heights, yet they were broken. So, Father, may we be reminded that you will break the power of Satan, even as you have already done so in the cross of Christ. And, Father, may we then rest in you and take comfort in this fact and be emboldened and encouraged to persevere in our faith and obedience to you as we live in trying times and days that seem to grow darker. Father, may we not lose heart or hope, but trust in the one who has overcome the world. We pray this in his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.